We've been in John's gospel, and in John's gospel, the book he wrote, uh, under inspiration, we see seven magnificent I am statements by the Lord Jesus Christ. You've just been reminded of them on the screen. And uh, here they are, in case you want to be refreshed by them. The Lord Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Lord's seventh I am statement, his final one in John's gospel is before us tonight. It's in John chapter 15, verse 1. We'll take a look at it. And I don't want you to miss the point that we are in an entirely new chapter tonight. Absolutely. Miracles today. We made it out of chapter 14. Don't get too excited. I've been looking at chapter 15. It's so laden with great stuff. We'll be there for a long time. Look what it says. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine. That's the seventh I am statement in the book. The symbol of the vine, in particular the grapevine, was a very familiar one in Israel in the Lord's day and even for centuries before. In fact, the historian Josephus, you probably have heard of him, tells us that carved into the majestic wooden doors of one of the gates leading to the temple, the golden gate or the eastern gate, carved into its doors was the image of a grapevine because it was a symbol for Israel. Now the Lord's disciples and he had been at dinner. Well, it was the Lord's last supper. And you know what I hope now to have been a Passover meal. And during that time, many things were discussed. When the Lord was finished, he said to them, if you recall, at the end of the previous chapter, he said, now get up and let us go from here. So he changed geographic location. They were in what we refer to as the upper room. They exited the upper room, and they were making their way, by foot, of course, first downhill, and they were going to cross a valley called the Kidron Valley, and they were going to make their way to the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of Jerusalem, and there in particular, they were going to find their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place very familiar to the Lord because he often sought the Father's comfort there. He prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, on the way, if you can imagine it, they would have passed this magnificent gate leading to the temple, the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. There, they would have seen the image of this massive clump of grapes, a grapevine symbolizing Israel. And I'm just wondering if that prompted the Lord to speak at this point about 
the vine and he being the true vine. Also, during this time of year, it would have been March and, or April, that's when Passover takes place, the grapevines would have been in full bloom. And I wonder, even as if they were walking towards the Mount of Olives, I wonder if the Lord literally reached out and took one of these grapevines and held it up in front of his disciples to use it as an object lesson. You see, the vine was a reference to Israel. In fact, it was so popularly a representation of Israel, it even appeared on ancient coins like the one you're seeing before you now. You can see the grapevine on it. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, if I say the Hebrew Scriptures, you know I'm speaking of the Old Testament, right? When we go to Israel or have the chance to share our faith with a Jewish person, we try to use the term Hebrew Scriptures <coughs> rather than Old Testament because uh, though we value the term and understand it, it has a connotation not very receivable because it implies it's old, it's obsolete, it's, it's of no value. In fact, sadly, there are even some well-known speakers, preachers today who think we ought to move quickly past the Old Testament. Now, I understand the sentiment of it, the fulfillment of all the types, the foreshadowing of all ultimate things, which we see in the Old Testament, we find in Christ and the New Testament. But folks, you rob yourself if you don't spend time in all of Scripture. I want to know how you could appreciate the book of Hebrews, for instance, if you're not familiar first with the book of Leviticus. Now, I don't understand how you could understand what it says in Corinthians when it says, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us if you don't understand the Passover introduced to us in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. I begun to embrace the term instead of Old Testament, the Older Testament and the Newer Testament to try to remove the edge of obsolescence. All Scripture is inspired by God. And when the Lord was in the form of man, he and the apostles whom he recruited and discipled and trained, and they who laid the foundation for our faith, the only Scripture, the only holy writ they had were the Hebrew Scriptures, you see. That's all they had. So I hope we're not diminishing the value and importance of all Scripture. Anyway, in the Hebrew Scriptures, this image of Israel being the vine is uh, frequently revealed. And so I want to give you an example of it. It's in Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to this most interesting text. We can call it a parable. Listen. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? 
So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. The Lord is speaking of Israel here. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now we see in the parable who's being spoken of. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So then the vine, according to Isaiah chapter 5, is a representation of Israel. But Israel as a vine failed terribly to produce the fruit. The owner of the vine, the vine dresser, had every right to expect. In contrast with Israel, the imperfect vine, we see now at the beginning of John 15, the Lord Jesus himself identifying himself as the perfect or true vine. God did not get sufficient fruit, the fruit he deserved and expected from Israel, the imperfect vine, but one of Israel's own, the Lord Jesus Christ, made up for it. He's the perfect vine. He's the true vine. He's the epitome. Jesus is. He's the epitome of God, what God wanted, what he expected from his people, Israel. Jesus brought forth the fruit Israel has failed to produce. And so the Lord declares, I am, this is his seventh I am statement, I am the true vine. Furthermore, he says, you'll notice in the text, and my father is the vine dresser. So in this parable in John 15, we see first the vine. Now we know the vine is the Lord Jesus. And then we see the branches, and the branches are people. And thirdly, we see the vine dresser, and the vine dresser is none other than God the Father. And here now in verse 2, we can see what the vine dresser, Almighty God, does. Verse 2, every branch in me, the vine, the true vine, the Lord Jesus is speaking. He's the me. Every branch, every person in me, that does not bear fruit, he, the he is God the Father, the vine dresser, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. God prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So God, the vine dresser, according to the text, prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it may bear more fruit. God is to be thought of, if you will, as the divine gardener, he prunes those who are his. He prunes fruitful branches so that they may bear even more fruit. Now, that's good, and yet it hurts. Pruning, if you think about it, is a rather violent process. It's a cutting away of stuff. It hurts. The pruning which we, as branches tied to Jesus, the true vine, experience hurts. Yet we have to know that pruning is not arbitrary or whimsical. It's always intentional by the vine dresser. It's always purposeful by Almighty God. And the purpose is so that we, branches tied to the true vine, may bear even more fruit. Folks, think about this. We have a God, 
though he's transcendent and the almighty. We have a God who tends to us because he wants us to grow and to develop and to bear more fruit. So he subjects us, he does, sometimes to hurtful and harsh conditions so that energy-sapping dead branches can be cut away for the purpose of bearing more fruit. God, the vine dresser, has his ways of removing those things from the branch that sap its fruitfulness. And so he removes useless buds and uh, discolored leaves and dead shoots. In fact, he removes everything in us that's consuming energy and life and yet which is producing no lasting fruit. And this explains why even dedicated and devoted Christians go through times of suffering and adversity. It's because God is pruning us so that we bear even more fruit. A young, relatively young lady in our church recently got a shocking diagnosis, a medical diagnosis. She's a good person. She loves the Lord. And she said to me, why now, said she. She said, I have drifted in times past. I've been rebellious, but I turned the corner some time ago. There's nothing now between God and I. There's no pattern of sin, nothing for me to be ashamed about. I would have expected this diagnosis when I was adrift, but now I'm devoted and dedicated, and here I get this call from the doctor about a life-threatening condition. Why is this happening? It, folks, I suspect it's because, specifically because, as a fruit bearer, God desires from her even more fruit, and he has a way of seeing that produced, even through the affliction and hardship, which he has permitted to come her way. Flowers are beautiful things, aren't they? Some here, I'll bet, have flower gardens. You plant them, and your intent is for the flowers, when they grow, simply be a to be a delight to your eyes. You have no expectation of fruit from the flower. It's just an externally pleasing thing. But that's not the case with a grapevine. The goal or purpose of grapevines being planted is not just to look good. It's to produce grapes. That's us, folks. We are the grapevine. God's desire is not just that we would look good on Sundays or at other times when we come to church, not just that we would look good on the outside, but that there would be the development of internal maturity and fruit dependence on Christ, which he is producing sometimes even through the throes of life. I had a professor in seminary from whom I took every class I possibly could because he was so helpful, so genius in handling scripture. His name is D.A. Carson, Don Carson. Maybe some of you know of him. He made this statement. We too, we too easily want the fruitfulness of a well-kept vine branch, but think little about the disciplined pruning performed by the divine gardener. If you're bearing fruit, expect for there to be more pruning. This is uh, counterintuitive. We have to unlearn what we think. Uh, 
God takes even more of an interest in the life of a fruit-bearing Christian and is willing to expose that Christian even to the hardships of life for the sole purpose that that Christian might bear more fruit. And the pruning, God knows this, it hurts. But I wonder if you and I could think about what's really happening during the pruning process. It's really Almighty God taking an interest in us, the ones whom he prunes. Think about it. You might have been passed by in the course of life by people close to you and important to you, but who is more important than your creator? And it's he, the vine dresser, who has chosen to take a deep, intimate, and personal interest in us. That's what his pruning of us represents. He's personally involved, think about it, in subjecting us to circumstances for the sole purpose of enhancing our dependence on him because when we cling to him and are more dependent on him, fruit comes in the process. And why? Well, it's because branches that are closely connected to the vine bear more fruit. That's a horticultural principle, but it's a spiritual principle as well. Branches that are closest to the vine bear more fruit. Now, God is not out to hurt us as an end in itself. He does not expose us to circumstances indiscriminately. His design is to perfect us through the trials of life. As someone has said, when, not if, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So I think you have observed, as I have, that both believers and non-believers in this world are subject to the trials and hardships of this, this life, but there's a different difference. For the non-believer, you see, his or her trials serve no useful purpose. They, they are indiscriminate. They just happen. They're random. For the Christian, however, it's entirely different. The trials a believer experiences are designed to provide an opportunity for growth and for the experience of the grace of God. So non-believers are like an uncultivated, unattended to, uncared for, wild vineyard. But believers, on the other hand, are like a cultivated vineyard to whom the vine dresser, who we now know to be God himself, pays very close attention. In fact, as someone has said, the vine dresser is never nearer the vine than when he is pruning it, folks. The Lord Jesus, whom we love, is never nearer to us than when he is pruning us. We despise it and sometimes complain about it, but it means the Lord Jesus is personally tending to us. Now, verse 2, if you looked at it carefully, speaks of two kinds of branches. One type bears fruit and therefore is pruned so that it may bear more fruit, but the other type, the other branch, does, doesn't bear any fruit and of this un fruitful branch, we read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I wish I could skip that, but in the interest of dealing with all of Scripture, I have to tell you in fairness, well-intentioned believers interpret that phrase in very different ways. 
For instance, some say this is speaking of unsaved people who do not know Christ. They are the fruitless branches who he takes away, literally, on into eternity. Those are unsaved people, say some, who do not know Christ. Others say, no, that's not the case. This is speaking of saved people, but they're saved people who, though they know Christ, they lose their salvation because they're not bearing fruit. And then a third group of people say, no, uh, this is speaking of those who claim to know Christ, who profess to know Christ, but who really do not personally know him at all. I would like to tell you, and you have to decide for yourself, I do not think this phrase is speaking of saved people who lost their salvation. And I'll tell you why. I don't even think that's possible. (laughs) We're given, save people, eternal life. Without getting complicated, what does eternal mean? (laughs) It doesn't say temporary life, conditional life. It's eternal life. Eternal life is eternal. Let's just cut through all the theological fanciness of the argument. It's eternal life. For instance, listen to John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, says the Lord Jesus, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, folks, if you want to be one of those who thinks your sin is greater than God's grace, and thus you've lost your salvation, that's fine. I want to stand right by you, and boy, are you going to be surprised when you find out everyone entrusted to the Lord Jesus will be eternally saved. Furthermore, I think based on the immediate context here, uh, this is talking about those who are not really uh, saved. It's talking about those who identify with Christ, yet who really do not know him. I'll tell you what I mean about the context. Just a few hours before this, now we're in John chapter 15, but in John chapter 13, which we examined, it seems like, years ago, it's really just a few hours prior to what we're reading now. In John chapter 13, that's the Last Supper. And during that time, the Lord uh, told everyone there in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 13, he said, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. Of course, the Lord is making reference to Judas, right? Judas Iscariot. So all who believed in the Lord at the Last Supper were clean, the Lord said. But Judas was not. He was with them, but really not of them. He was in the crowd, and he had some awareness of Christ, some knowledge of him, some contact with him, but he remained unclean. He's the one of the eleventh who is set apart by his traitorous deeds. He was never redeemed. Judas, therefore, in my opinion, was the kind of person spoken of in the first phrase of verse 2. Remember, context rules here. And also in verse 6. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Judas is in Christ to a certain extent. He's not in Christ in terms of his redemption. He's in Christ in the same sense in which a lot of people are in church. Lots of people go to church. So what? (laughs) The church can't save you. Serving in a church doesn't save you. 
Giving to a church doesn't save you. There are many people who are cultural Christians, but do not know Christ personally, nor in a redemptive way. Judas was an example of a branch in me that does not bear fruit, and who therefore is taken away. Uh, Judas was taken away, not because he lost his salvation, but because he never possessed it. Judas was fruitless, in other words, because Judas was faithless. I think this is the kind of person spoken of in verse 2. So this is not about an unfruitful Christian who, because he or she is unfruitful, loses his salvation. It's about a non-believer who merely professes to know Christ, but who really doesn't. Can I make a dogmatic statement here? I don't think it's possible for there to be a fruitless Christian. But I, I, I don't even think it's possible. You see, I don't think one can truly be in Jesus, who is the true vine, and not bear fruit. It's not possible. So therefore, to me, there are only two options. One is either to be fruitless, and the second is to be fruitful. Which is it? Fruitless or fruitful. Now, those who are not redeemed are fruitless. They're not tied to the true vine. Those, on the other hand, who believe will because of God's work in them, bear fruit, albeit to varying degrees, different levels of spiritual maturity. So I think the dead branches in this text are a reference to those who, just like Judas, have a superficial but not a real attachment to Christ. They call themselves Christians, which is a very easy thing to do, and they may even attend church, possibly even uh, serve in the church, but they're really not in union with Christ, the true vine, and as a result, there's no real spiritual fruit in their lives. Sometimes there are church fights and people say, my goodness, that person is really not behaving like a Christian. And maybe because he or she is not behaving like a Christian because he or she ain't. Wheat and tares in the church, you see. And so, uh, Fruit is part and parcel of being connected to the vine. What, by the way, are we talking about when we talk about fruit? Well, in subsequent weeks, I'll give you part B of it, the external manifestation of fruit for tonight. Can I just call your attention to the internal production of fruit that comes to the life of someone who's tied by faith to Christ as the true vine? I think it's the list of nine qualities that Paul has so popularly told us about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, here it is. There are nine qualities. You can count them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, don't get nervous as I read that list. You say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm concerned about these things. Folks, do you know it takes time for fruit of any kind to grow, it doesn't happen right away. Therefore, if you don't see all of these nine characteristics in full measure yet in your life, join the crowd. We're in the process of growing. No one has arrived yet. However, if you are a Christian, you ought to see evidence of the growing development of, the, uh, of these characteristics in your life. You're not perfected yet. You're not complete yet. You're not entirely like Christ yet. We're in the process of, it's called being sanctified, made to be more like Christ. But good night, folks. If you can't sit here and say, 
I'm not exactly who I want to be, but I'm so grateful. I'm nothing like I used to be. If you, can't, if you don't see evidence of that kind of change in your life, I don't want to hurt you or criticize you. I want to invite you. Stay around later tonight and meet with us in the Connection Center so we can check on your fruit with you a little bit, kind of find out while you're not, while you're not seeing the evidence of the fruit you would like to. So, folks, what we're talking about here in Galatians, that's the fruit of union with Christ. These are the qualities each who calls himself a Christian, each of us, ought to see being produced by God in us. Folks, how could it be that Almighty God who spoke the very universe into existence, he who is the Alpha and Omega, has no beginning nor end, how could it be that he would take up his abode in our life and it not show, it not change us? You tell me that. That's why I say I don't think there's any such thing as a fruitless Christian. So those who, like Judas, know of Christ, but do not truly know Christ, in my opinion, are the ones here who are being considered unfruitful and unclean. This, however, is not at all true of those who are truly in union with Christ. In fact, of those, the Lord says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Based upon our faith, by God's grace, in his word of redemption, the gospel message, the believer is pronounced to be clean. And folks, as you can see, that is past action. That is true of every believer. You are already clean. That's a pronouncement. By Jesus, the true vine, contingent upon our faith in him. You and I are pronounced justified, is another word, just as if we had never sinned the minute we accept Christ. We are forgiven. Our sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And like this little goofy advertisement you'll see on the screen, folks, we are squeaky clean. This is somebody's business. Um, I should get a cut for marketing this person. Folks, we are clean with such a squeaky kind of cleanness because of the blood of Christ. It's a cleanness we ought to remember. That's our biggest battle in the Christian life, to remember who we is right now. <laughs> Not who we one day will be, who we are right now. The Lord Jesus said you are already clean. Therefore, the motivation we are given in this text to participate in the process of bearing more fruit, that motivation is not so that we would be saved, but because we are already saved. And the Lord Jesus is essentially saying, live in light of the pronouncement I've already put upon you. You don't wake up in the morning and say, what a worm I am. You say... I've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and therefore I want to live up to what's already true of me. Notice, God is not asking anything of us until he proclaims in this text what's already true of us. You are already clean. You'll see that approach uh, of the Lord's motivation all through Scripture. First he tells us what's already true, and then he says, now go live that way. So we don't participate in the process of bearing fruit, once again, to be clean, to be saved, because that's already true of us. We bear fruit. And then the text says to true believers in verse 4, abide in me. If we are already cleansed, if we're already united 
to Christ by his word, his pronouncement of reconciliation upon us, contingent on our faith in his redemptive work on the cross. If this is already true, then he has this to say to us, now abide in me, and notice the mutuality of it, and I in you. This, in this text, is the Lord's, perhaps you've noticed, first commandment in the entire passage. This is the first thing he commands us to do. Abide in me. Why does he so strongly insist on us abiding in him? Why does he say abide in me? It's because of this. Union is indispensable to usefulness. And so the Lord in this verse continues to say, as the branch, us, cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, him, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So through personal faith and by God's grace, we are already in union with Christ when we have accepted him as our Savior. Therefore, the union already being established, we ought to focus on developing closer communion with him. And how do we do this? How do you develop a closer relationship with anybody? It's through, it's through conversation. There's no magic to it. How do you converse with the Lord? Well, he communicates to us through his word. That's God doing the talking. We make it a two-way kind of a dialogue by responding to him. That's called prayer. That's how any relationship develops. You can't develop if you're with someone who's monopolizing the conversation. There has to be speaking and listening and there has to be interchange. And that's what it is with the Lord. I, I, I. I beg you not to miss out on the distinct privilege of being alone with Christ every day. I don't think he died so that we would have him collectively. <laughs> I think he died so that we would have him personally, privately. And there's nothing richer and better. I wish I had time to, to show you how simple this is. I crack open the scriptures. I do this in the morning. Because the day gets away of you, uh, ahead of you, and you, you, you lose this time. I start the day with the Lord in the morning, not for hours. I'm not that spiritual. Just a brief time. I happen to be reading through the Psalms now. You read anywhere you want. And I listen. That's God's word. Words are meant to communicate. And I tell him, oh, God, your son, your servant is here. I'm ready to listen. And as I read, it prompts my thoughts. And that's the basis of my prayer life. So I read something, and maybe it's something I want to pray for a relative of mine for whom I'm concerned, or a friend, or myself. So I let God set the agenda with reference to my prayer life. Isn't it insulting to have a conversation with someone? They say something to you, and you say something totally unrelated. That just communicated to the person, you're not listening. Now, that's how we do God. We read his word and take off and talk about things that are not in any way related to what he just shared with us. So for those of us who say, I'd like to pray, but I don't know what to pray. Yeah, that, but, because you're doing it wrong. Let God set the agenda. First, let him do the talking. And you simply respond to what you're reading. Now, in order to do that, you have to read real slow. You read slowly. You read slowly. You know what that does over time? It develops intimacy. That's called abiding in Christ and letting Christ abide 
with you folks. Christ has, in the form of his Holy Spirit, established his abode in us. Therefore, here's our responsibility. It is to live in such a way that he feels at home in us. Abiding in Christ means to live in such manner that we don't do a thing that would make him uncomfortable living in us. We're having some out-of-town relatives come to spend a few days with us. I hope not too long. But anyway, they're coming, and uh, we're thinking about the room set up, you know, and you put out towels, and you make sure the sheets are clean and all the rest, and they have access to the bath. You know, you do these things, and we might even leave some candy on the pillowcases or something like that. I don't know, I may be overdoing it. I don't want them to stay that long. But anyway, um, you know how it is when you're hosting someone, you want the guest to feel comfortable. And that's what abiding means. When Christ says, I, I abide in you and you in me, we want him to feel comfortable. Because I tell you what makes him feel uncomfortable? It's not our flaws and imperfections, it's our sin. It makes him feel uncomfortable because he's so intensely holy. So abiding in Christ means to obey him. He's comfortable in an atmosphere of obedience. So my responsibility and yours then as one of the branches is not to bear fruit. Take that pressure off of you. No, no, no. It's not our responsibility to bear fruit. It is our responsibility to abide in Christ. Why? Because as it says, the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And to emphasize the importance of so doing, the importance of abiding in Christ, the Lord makes this very clear statement in verse 5, our final verse for the evening. Verse 5, look what he said. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's just simple. There's only one true vine, and you ain't it. Neither me. It's very, very important that we do not make of ourselves something other than who we are. It can be fatal to our faith. I'm not the vine. I can't produce the fruit. I'm just a branch. I must abide in the true vine. He who abides in me, it says, and I in him, here's what happens. He bears much fruit. Why? For apart from me, you can do nothing. So folks, fruit bearing is a function of intimacy, not ability. Fruit bearing is a function of intimacy, not ability. So if you look around and make the mistake of comparing yourself to others, say, I don't have that person's gift, that person's personality, it has nothing to do with fruit bearing. Fruit bearing is a function of intimacy, a function of abiding in Christ, not a function of native ability. And so here then as we close, it's a summation of the Christian life. Having been made clean, we are being pruned. Hopefully, we are abiding. And as a result, we are bearing more and more fruit. If you do not see this progression in your life, once again, I'd like to invite you to spend some time with us. And let's uh, examine things a little bit. Let's just really see why you're not seeing the fruitfulness you would like to see in your life. Now, one answer could be that you're not really, by faith, connected to the true vine. We would love to make sure you know how that could be the case. 
we would love for you to be in Christ. There's no greater blessing, gift, and privilege than to be one of the branches connected to Jesus, the true vine, so that his life force in us manifests itself in internal fruit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. Earlier tonight, I had the occasion of putting a tract in the hand of a young man named Jacob. I tell you this because I'd like you to pray for him, and also, I want to brag. I do. I only had a chance. He, there was no opportunity for more but to say to him, Jacob, what a great name. That's a biblical name. I said, Jacob, I'd like to give you this. He was delivering something. I said, please read it, but not while you're driving. Read it at some other time. That's it. That's not much, is it? That's all the opportunity I had. I tell you, it was exhilarating. I know no greater pleasure on earth than to be an ambassador for Christ. And folks, we have got to turn up the burner. People are being given over increasingly to the penalty of rebelling against God. It's called a reprobate mind, according to Romans 1. You know what that means? A mind that's just not working. So even intelligent people vote in legislation to extinguish the life of a fully viable baby and celebrate it. It's not an IQ deficit that they labor over. It's a reprobate mind. And this would be you and I too, apart from the true vine, don't you see? And I'm thinking with people celebrating terrible degradation, sin, horrific evils, why are we withholding the gospel message? Which is the word of God through which someone by faith could be pronounced clean? And then when that happens, the fruit which we see developing in us develops in them. You develop the mind of Christ. I'll tell you why I'm not in favor of some of the moral imperatives of the day that you hear popularly, popularly proclaimed, a redefinition of marriage and of gender and all the rest. I'll tell you why. It's not because of any inherent virtue. It's because I'm Getting the mind of Christ, that's fruit. I'm seeing things through his eyes. That, that's part of salvation. You don't just get saved from sin. That would be plenty. You get saved from a reprobate mind. You get to value that which Christ values. Why? Because you're abiding in him. He's abiding in you. You're not smarter. You're not better than anybody else. You're connected to the vine, the true vine. And you see the evidence of fruit developing in your life. And these other poor people, they're fruitless. And <gasps> they're going to be cast into the fire. I don't want that to happen. Neither do you. Folks, I think we've got to stop being so trepidatious, so fearful, and so concerned about what people think about us. Could I tell you what people out there think of Christians? Not much. Already. So what do we have to lose? Go for it. Um, I was on the phone the other day with a computer, or one of these technical support people, two hours on the phone to get things worked out, who knows what. You know what I told that person about Christ? And there was even dead time in the conversation. The person said, this is going to take a few minutes. There was some time. You know what I told that person about Christ? Nothing. Got off the phone and my computer was fixed. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yay. I got my needs taken care of. My agenda was played out. 
What about the Redeemer's agenda? We're here for only one reason, and that's to win people to the Lord. I didn't do a thing. I was just so distracted by the computer deal. I thought that's the purpose of life, get a functioning, working computer. Oh, no. So you know what I felt at the end of that conversation? Really bad. And I told the Lord, I hope I never feel good about this. I don't ever want to feel good about walking past an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, the true vine. Awkward, clumsy, not having all the answers, so what? And at the end, you've had this situation. I thought of so many ways I could have broached the subject. I could have said, thank you for investing your time and expertise in helping with my Uh, me with my computer, I'd like to help you with something that's also in disarray, something that needs to be fixed because it's broken. It's your relationship with the God who made you. I thought, wow, what a good approach. Lost and wasted. Now, I'm not unduly beating up on myself because remember, I've already been pronounced to be clean. I'm not trying to win God's favor and salvation by Uh, being more faithful as an evangelist. No, since I'm already redeemed, since I'm already a clean one, since I'm already connected to the true vine, I want to function in that light. I don't want to be distracted by the stuff of everyday life. Folks, in the end, all that matters is us being ambassadors for Christ. And there's, it's amazing to me. I felt so giddy on the way here tonight. And all I did was put a track in this young guy, Jacob, pray for him. I think God has the capacity to use even that little piece of paper to stir up this young guy's heart. I was exhilarated. I knew I really was smack dab in the will of God when I reached out to Jacob. Folks, I I only did that today. It was an exception to the rule. I let all kinds of people pass me by. Don't do it, folks. You're either fruitful, that's a Christian, or you're fruitless, that's someone disconnected from the true vine, and the penalty thereof is to be extracted, cast into fire, and perish throughout eternity. We don't want that to happen, do we? Someone said to me once, it hurt me, but it's true. He said, Stuart, if you have such a heart for God, why don't you have a mouth for him? Speak up. What's the smoothest way to get into a conversation about things of eternal consequence? There ain't none. Just do it. I spoke to one of our members the other day who was in one of these Uber things. You do these Uber things? A lady was the Uber driver, and this person in the church simply said to the lady, do you believe in God? She said, yes. He said, which one? And a conversation ensued. I thought, wow, that's such a good thing. I was speaking to another church member the other day who was at dinner. David and I were talking about this a little earlier. And this guy was at dinner and said to the person waiting on them, we like to pray. What can we pray for you? That's how that person started conversation. Anything is legitimate. Bring up Christ. Make him an issue, folks. He's the true vine. No people group is, no church is, no religious experience is. Jesus is the true vine. 
Apart from him, you can do nothing. What does that mean? You can't see a harvest of spiritual fruit apart from Jesus, the true vine. It's no wonder the world is going crazy. And folks, we can point the finger and get real angry at them, but to some extent, it's because of us. We're not telling them about the true vine. Would you pray for me that I never get comfortable walking past someone without thinking about their eternity and trying to get a conversation going. And I'm going to pray similarly for you that God's Spirit mess you up, make you miserable for walking past potential harvest of souls all over the place. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the true vine. Uh, Thank you for pleasing the Father, the vine dresser, Thank you for rescuing us and by your grace through our faith, allowing a connection with you so that we are fruitful branches. We see the evidence of your spirit in us in various ways. We would like to see more evidence. Part of that is because we're not making you feel all that comfortable in us as the honored guest. Sin does that. Oh God, I pray we would clean up every room of our house so that you can fill us fully with your Holy Spirit so that the fruit-bearing process would accelerate. It's your desire for us to bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit. Lord Jesus, we trust you to use even the throes of life to enhance our dependence on you so that we cling to you as the true vine because... Fruitfulness is not a function of ability, it's a function of intimacy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking up your abode in our life. It's such a blessing, it's such a gift, we dare not hoard it, keep it to ourselves. Make us to burn white hot with evangelistic fervor in the time we have still left here on earth. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.